0: Section 1 of Stories by Foreign Authors, German Authors, Volume 2 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Stories by Foreign Authors, German Authors, Volume 2 by Various. Section 1 Christian Gellert's Last Christmas by Berthold Auerbach From German Tales, 1869 Three o'clock had just struck from the tower of St. Nicholas, Leipzig, on the afternoon of December 22, 1768, when a man, wrapped in a loose overcoat, came out of the door of the university. His countenance was exceedingly gentle, and on his features cheerfulness still lingered for he had been gazing upon a hundred cheerful faces after him thronged in a troop of students who holding back allowed him to precede them the pastors in the street saluted him and some students who pressed forwards and hurried past him homewards saluted him quite reverentially he returned their salutations with a surprised and almost deprecatory air and yet he knew and could not conceal from himself that he was one of the most beloved, not only in the good city of Leipzig, but in all lands far and wide. It was Christian Fürchtegott Gellert, the poet of fables, hymns, and lays, who was just leaving his college. When we read his Lectures upon Morals, which were not printed until after his death, we obtain but a very incomplete idea of the great power with which they came immediately from Gellert's mouth. Indeed it was his voice and the touching manner in which he delivered his lectures that made so deep an impression upon his hearers, and Rabiner was right when once he wrote to a friend that the philanthropic voice of Gellert belonged to his words. Above all, however, it was the amiable and pure personal character of Gellert which vividly and edifyingly impressed young hearts. Gellert was himself the best example of pure moral teaching, and the best which a teacher can give his students is faith in the victorious might and the stability of the eternal moral laws. His lessons were for life, for his life in itself was a lesson, many a victory over the troubles of life, over temptations of every kind. A, many an elevation to nobility of thought and to purity of action, had its origin in that lecture hall at the feet of Gellert. It was as though Gellert felt that it was the last time he would deliver these lectures, that those words so often and so impressively uttered would be heard no more from his mouth, and there was a peculiar sadness, yet a peculiar strength, in all he said that day he had this day earnestly recommended modesty and humility and it appeared almost offensive to him that people as he went should tempt him in regard to these very virtues for continually he heard men whisper that is gellert what is fame and what is honor a cloak of many colors without warmth without protection and now, as he walked along, his heart literally froze in his bosom as he confessed to himself that he had as yet done nothing, nothing which could give him a feeling of real satisfaction. Men honored him and loved him, but what was all that worth? His innermost heart could not be satisfied with that. In his own estimation, he deserved no meed of praise, and where where was there any evidence of that higher and purer life which he would fain bring about then again the spirit would comfort him and say much seed is lost much falls in stony places and much on good ground and brings forth sevenfold his inmost soul heard not the consolation for his body was weak and sore burdened from his youth up and in his later days yet more than ever and there are conditions of the body in which the most elevating words and their cheeriest notes of joy strike dull and heavy on the soul. It is one of the bitterest experiences of life to discover how little one man can really be to another. How joyous is that youthful freshness which can believe that, by a thought transferred to another's heart, we can induce him to become another being, to live according to what he must acknowledge true, to throw aside his previous delusions and return to the right path. The youngsters go their way. Do your words follow after? Whither are they going? What now their thoughts? What manner of life will be theirs? My heart yearns after them, but cannot be with them oh how happy were those messengers of the spirit who cried aloud to youth or manhood the words of the spirit that they must leave their former ways and thenceforth change to other beings pardon me O god that i would fain be like them i am weak and vile and yet methinks there must be words as yet unheard unknown oh where are they these words which at once lay hold upon the soul. With such heavy thoughts went Gallert away from his college gate to Rosenthal. There was but one small pathway cleared, but the passengers cheerfully made way for him, and walked in the snow that they might leave him, the pathway unimpeded. But he felt sad, and as if each tree had somewhat to cast at him. Like all men, really pure, and cleaving to the good with all their might, Gellert was not only far from contenting himself with work already done, he also, in his anxiety to be doing, almost forgot that he the inward depression easily changes to displeasure against everyone, and the household of the melancholic suffers thereby intolerably, for the displeasure turns against them no one does anything properly, nothing is in its place, how very different is Gellert's melancholy. Not a soul suffers from it, but himself, against himself. Alone his gloomy thoughts turn, and towards every other creature he is always kind, amiable, and obliging. He bites his lips, but when he speaks to anyone he is wholly good, forbearing, and self-forgetful. Whilst they were talking together, Gellert was sitting in his room, and had lighted a pipe to dispel the agitation which he would experience in opening his letters, and while smoking he could read them through much more comfortably. He reproached himself for smoking, which was said to be injurious to his health, but he could not quite give up the horrible practice, as he called it. He first examined the addresses and seals of the letters which had arrived, then quietly opened and read them. A fitful smile passed over his features. There were letters from well-known friends, full of love and admiration, but from strangers also, who, in all kinds of heart distress, took counsel of him. He read the letters full of friendly applause, first hastily, that he might have the right of reading them again, and that he might not know all at once and when he had read a friend's letter for the second time he sprang from his seat and cried thank god thank god that i am so fortunate as to have such friends to his inwardly diffident nature these helps were a real requirement they served to cheer him and only those who did not know him called his joy at the reception of praise conceit it was on the contrary the truest modesty How often did he sit here, and all that he had taught and written, all that he had ever been to men in the world, indeed, faded, vanished, and died away, and he appeared to himself but a useless servant of the world. His friends he answered immediately, and as his inward melancholy vanished, and the philanthropy, nay, the sprightliness of his soul, beamed forth, when he was among men, and looked in a living face. So was it also with his letters, when he bethought him of the friends to whom he was writing, he not only acquired tranquillity, that virtue for which his whole life long he strove, but his loving nature received a new life, and only by slight intimations did he betray the heaviness and dejection which weighed upon his soul. He was, in the full sense of the word, philanthropic. In the sight of good men, and in thoughts for their welfare, there was for him a real happiness and a joyous animation. When, however, he had done writing and felt only again, the gloomy spirits came back. He had seated himself, wishing to raise his thoughts for more composing a sacred song, but he was ill at ease and had no power to express that inward, firm, and self-rejoicing might of faith which lived in him. Again and again the scoffers and free thinkers rose up before his thoughts. He must refute their objections, and not until that was done did he become himself. It is a hard position when a creative spirit cannot forget the adversaries which on all sides oppose him in the world. They come unsummoned to the room, and they will not be expelled. They peer over the shoulder and tug at the hand which fain would write. They turn images upside down, and distort the thoughts, and here and there, from ceiling and wall, they grin and scoff and oppose, and what was just gushing as an aspiration from the soul is converted to a confused absurdity. At such a time the spirit, courageous and self-dependent, must take refuge in itself and show a firm front to the world of foes. A strong nature boldly hurls his inkstand at the devil's head, goes to battle with his opponents with words, both written and spoken, and keeps his own individuality free from the perplexities with which opponents disturb all that has been previously done, and make the soul unsteadfast and unnerved for what is to come. Gellert's was no battling defiant nature which relies upon itself. He did not hurl his opponents down and go his way. He would convince them, and so they were always ready to encounter him. And as the applause of his friends rejoiced him, so the opposition of his enemies could sink him in deep dejection. Besides, he had always been weakly. He had, as he himself complained, in addition to frequent coughs and a pain in his loins a continual gnawing and pressure in the centre of his chest which accompanied him from his first rising in the morning until he slept at night thus he sat for a while in deep dejection and as often before his only wish was that god would give him grace whereby when his hour was come he might die piously and tranquilly. It was past midnight when he sought his bed and extinguished his light, and the buckets at the well go up and go down. About the same hour in Dubin Forest the rustic Christopher was rising from his bed, as with steel and flint he scattered sparks upon the tinder, in kindling himself alight, his wife awakening, cried, Why that heavy sigh? ah life is a burden i'm the most harassed mortal in the world the pettiest office clerk may now be abed in peace and needn't break off his sleep while i must go out and brave wind and weather be content replied his wife why i dreamt you had actually been made magistrate and wore something on your head like a king's crown Oh, you women as though what you see isn't enough. You like to chatter about what you dream." "'Light the lamp, too,' said his wife, "'and I'll get up and make you a nice porridge.' The peasant, putting a candle in his lantern, went to the stable, and after he had given some fodder to the horses, he seated himself upon the manger. With his hands squeezed between his legs and his head bent down, he reflected over and over again what a wretched existence he had of it why thought he are so many men so well off so comfortable whilst you must always be toiling what care i if envy be not a virtue and yet i'm not envious i don't grudge others being well off only i should like to be well off too oh for a quiet easy life Am I not worse off than a horse? He gets fodder at the proper time, and takes no care about it. Why did my father make my brother a minister? He gets his salary without any trouble, sits in a warm room, and has no care in the world, and I must slave and torment myself." Strange to say, his very next thought that he would like to be made a local magistrate he would no wise confess to himself. He sat still a long while, then he went back again to the sitting-room. Past the kitchen where the fire was burning cheerily, he seated himself at the table and waited for his morning porridge. On the table lay an open book. His children had been reading it the previous evening. Involuntarily taking it up, he began to read. Suddenly he started rubbing his eyes, and then read again. How comes this verse here just at this moment? He kept his hand upon the book, and so easily had he caught the words that he repeated them to himself softly with his lips, and nodded several times as much as to say, that's true, and he said aloud, it's all there together, short and sweet, and he was still staring at it when his wife brought in the smoking porridge. Taking off his cap, he folded his hands and said aloud, Accept God's gifts with resignation, Content to lack what thou hast not. In every lot there's consolation, There's trouble too in every lot. The wife looked at her husband with amazement. What a strange expression was on his face! And as he sat down and began to eat, she said, What is the meaning of that grace? What has to you? Where did you find it?" "'It's the best of all graces, the very best. Real God's word. Yes, and all your life you've never made such nice porridge before. You must have put something special in it." "'I don't know what you mean. Stop! There's a story-book lying there." "'Ah, uh, that's it, and it's by Gellert of Leipzig.' "'What?' "'Gellert of Leipzig?' Men with ideas like that don't live now. There may have been such a thousand years ago in holy lands, not among us. Those are the words of a saint of old. And I tell you they are by Gallert of Leipzig, of whom your brother has told us. In fact he was his tutor, and haven't you heard how pious and good he is? I wouldn't have believed that such men still lived, and so near us too as leipzig well but those who lived a thousand years ago were also once living creatures and over leipzig is just the same heaven and the same sun shines and the same god rules as over all other cities oh yes my brother has an apt pupil in you well why not i've treasured up all he told us of professor gellert professor yes professor A man with such a proud, new-fangled title couldn't write anything like that. He didn't give himself the title, and he is poor enough withal And how hard it has fared with him. Even from childhood he has been well acquainted with poverty. His father was a poor minister in Hainishkin, with thirteen children. Gellert, when quite a little fellow, was obliged to be a copying office clerk can tell whether he didn't then contract that physical weakness of his and now that he is an old man things will never go better with him he has often no wood and must be pinched with cold it is with him perhaps as with that student of whom your brother has told us who is as poor as a rat and yet must read and so in winter he lies in bed with an empty stomach until day is far advanced and he has his book before him and first he takes out one hand to hold his book and then when that is numb with cold the other ah tongue cannot tell how poorly the man must live and yet your brother has told me if he has but a few pounds he doesn't think it all of himself he always looks for one still poorer than he is and then gives all away and he is always engaged in aiding and assisting others. Oh, dear, and yet he is so poor, maybe at this moment he is hungry and cold, and he is said to be in no health besides. Wife, I would willingly do the man a good turn if I could. If now he had some land, I could plough and sow and reap and carry and thresh by the way together for him. I should like to pay him attention in such a way that he might know there was at least one who cared for him. But his profession is one in which I can't be of any use to him. Well, just seek him out and speak with him once. You are going to-day, you know, with your wood to Leipzig. Seek him out and thank him. That sort of thing does a man's heart good. Anybody can see him." Yes, yes. I should like much to see him, and hold out to him my hand, but not empty. I wish I had something. Speak to your brother, and get him to give you a note to him." No, no, say nothing to my brother, but it might be possible for me to meet him in the street. Give me my Sunday coat. It will come to no harm under my cloak. When his wife brought him the coat, she said, if now gellert had a wife or a household of his own one might send him something but your brother says he is a bachelor and lives quite alone christopher had never before so cheerfully harnessed his horses and put them to his wood-laden wagon for a long while he had not given his hand so gaily to his wife at parting as today. now he started with his heavily laden vehicle through the village the wheels creaked and crackled in the snow At the parsonage he stopped, and looked away yonder where his brother was still sleeping. He thought he would wake him and tell him his intention, but suddenly he whipped up his horses and continued his route. He wouldn't yet bind himself to his intention. Perchance it was but a passing thought, he doesn't own that to himself, but he says to himself that he will surprise his brother with the news of what he has done and then his thoughts wandered away to the good man still sleeping yonder in the city, and he hummed the verse to himself in an old familiar tune. Wonderfully in life do effects manifest themselves of which we have no trace. Gellert too, heard in his dreams a singing, and he knew not what it was, but it rang so consolingly, so joyously. Christopher drove on and he felt as though a bandage had been taken from his eyes. He reflected what a nice house, what a bonny wife and rosy children he had, and how warm the cloak which he had thrown over him was, and how well off were both man and beast, and through the still of the night he drove along, and beside him sat a spirit, but not an illusion of the brain, such as in olden time men conjured up to their terror a good spirit sat beside him beside the woodman who his whole life long had never believed that anything could have power over him but what had hands and feet it is said that on troublous nights evil spirits settle upon the necks of men and belabor them so that they gasp and sweat for very terror quite another sort it was to-day which sat by the woodman and his heart was warm and its beating quick in ancient times men also carried loads of wood through the night that heretics might be burned thereon these men thought they were doing a good deed in helping to execute justice but who can say how painful it was to their hearts when they were forced to think ah tomorrow on this wood which now you carry will shriek and crackle and gasp a human being like yourself who can tell what black spirits settled on the necks of those who bore the wood to make a funeral pile how very different it was to-day with our woodman christopher and earlier still in ancient times men brought wood to the temple whereon they offered victims in the honor of god and according to their notions they did a good deed for when the words no longer sufficed to express the fervency of the heart it gladly offers what it prizes what it dearly loves as a proof of its devotion of the earnestness of its intent how differently went christopher from the dubin forest upon his way he knew not whether he were intending to bring a purer offering than men had brought in bygone ages but his heart grew warm within him it was day as he arrived before the gates of leipzig here there met him a funeral procession behind the bier the scholars of st thomas in long black cloaks were chanting christopher stopped and raised his hat whom were they burying supposing it were gellert yes surely he thought it is he and how gladly said he to himself would you now have done him a kindness i even given him your wood yes indeed you would and now he is dead and you cannot give him any help." As soon as the train had passed, Christopher asked who was being buried. It was a simple burgher, it was not Gellert, and in the deep breath which Christopher drew lay a double signification. On the one hand was joy that Gellert was not dead, on the other hand a still small voice whispered to him that he had now really promised to give him the wood. Ah. But whom had he promised himself and it is easy to argue with one's own conscience superstition babbles of conjuring spells by which without the cooperation of the patient the evil spirit can be summarily ejected it would be convenient if one had that power but in truth it is not so it is long ere the evil desire and the evil habit are removed from the soul into which they have nestled, and the will for a long while in bondage must cooperate, if a releasing spell from without is to set the prisoner free. One can only be guided, but himself must move his feet. As Christopher now looked about him, he found that he had stopped close by an inn. He drove his load a little aside, went into the parlor, and drank a glass of warmed beer there was already a goodly company, and not far from Christopher, sat a husbandman with his son, a student here, who was telling him how there had been lately a quite a stir. Professor Gellert had been ill, and riding a well-trained horse had been recommended for his health. Now Prince Henry of Prussia, during the Seven Years' War, at the occupation of Leipzig, had sent him a piebald that had died a short time ago and the elector, hearing of it, had sent Gellert from Dresden another, a chestnut, with golden bridle, blue velvet saddle, and gold embroidered housings. Half the city had assembled when the groom, a man with iron-gray hair, brought the horse, and for several days it was seen at the stable. But Gellert dared not mount it. It was so young and high-spirited the rustic now asked his son whether the professor did not make money enough to procure a horse of his own to which the son answered certainly not his salary is but one hundred and twenty-five dollars and his further gains are inconsiderable his lectures on morals he gives publicly i e gratis and he has hundreds of hearers and therefore at his own lectures which must be paid for he has so many the fewer. To be sure, he has now and then presents from grand patrons, but no one gives them once and for all enough to live upon, and to have all over with a single acknowledgement. Our friend Christopher started as he heard this. He had quite made up his mind to take Geller the wood, but he had yet to do it. How easy were virtue if it will and deed were the same thing? if performance could immediately succeed to the moment of burning enthusiasm. But one must make way over obstacles, over those that outwardly lie in one's path, and over those that are hidden deep in the heart, and negligence has a thousand very cunning advocates. How many go forth, prompted by good intentions, but let little hindrances turn them from their way, entirely from their way of life? In front of the house Christopher met another woodsman whom he knew, and you are stirring betimes. Prices are good to-day, but little comes to the market now, was the cry from all sides. Christopher wanted to say that all that didn't concern him, but he was ashamed to confess that his design was, and an inward voice told him he must, must not lie. Without answering he joined the rest, and went his way to the market and on the road he thought there are peter and godfrey and john who have seven times your means and not one of them i'm sure would think of doing anything of the kind why will you be the kind-hearted fool stay what manners is what others do or leave undone every man shall answer for himself yes but go to market it is better it should be so yes Certainly much better. Sell your wood. Who knows? Perhaps he doesn't want it, and take him the proceeds, or at least the greater portion. But is the wood still yours? You have, properly speaking, already given it away. It has only not been taken from your keeping. There are people who cannot give. They can only let a thing be taken either by the hand of chance or by urgency and entreaty. Christopher had such fast hold of possession that it was only after sore wrestling that he let it go and yet his heart was kind at least to-day it was so disposed but the tempter whispered it is not easy to find so good-natured a fellow as you how readily would you have given had the man been in want and your good intention must go for the deed still on the other hand there was something in him which made opposition an echo from those hours when in the still night he was driving thither and it burned in him like sacred fire and it said you must now accomplish what you intended certainly no one knows of it and you are responsible to no one but you know of it yourself and one above you knows and how shall you be justified and he said to himself i'll stand by this look it is just nine. If no one asks the price of your wood until ten o'clock, until the stroke of ten, until has done striking, I mean, if no one asks, then the wood belongs to Professor Gellert. But if a buyer come, then it is a sign that you need not, should not, give it away. There, that's all settled. But now, what means you this? Can you make your good deed dependent upon such a chance as this? No, no, I don't mean it, but yet, yet only for a joke, I'll try it." Temptation kept him turning, as it were, in a circle, and still he stood with an apparently quiet heart by his wagon in the market. The people who heard him muttering in this way to himself looked at him with wonder, and passed by him to another wagon as though he had not been there. It struck nine. Can you patiently wait another hour? Christopher lighted his pipe, and looked calmly on while this and that load was driven off. It struck the quarter, half-hour, three-quarters. Christopher now put his pipe in his pocket. It had long been cold, and his hands were almost frozen. All his blood rushed to his heart. NOW IT STRUCK THE FULL HOUR, STROKE AFTER STROKE. AT FIRST HE COUNTED, THEN HE FESSENED HE HAD LOST A STROKE AND MISCALCULATED. EITHER VOLUNTARILY OR INVOLUNTARILY, HE SAID TO HIMSELF WHEN IT HAD FINISHED STRIKING, YOU'RE WRONG, IT IS NINE, NOT TEN. HE TURNED ROUND THAT HE MIGHT NOT SEE THE DIAL, AND THUS HE STOOD FOR SOME TIME, WITH HIS HANDS UPON THE WAGON-RACK gazing at the wood. He knew not how long he had been thus standing, when someone tapped him on the shoulder and said, How much for the load of wood? End of section 1